the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of Mark chapter 1. So please stand together with me as we read the text for today, which is Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you now for this time where we can hear from you. We pray that you would give grace to Nick as he communicates this passage to us. And we pray that you would grant us grace that we might have receiving hearts. That as the truth is communicated to us, that you would penetrate the thickness of our, abstinence, our, our uh, strong wills and, and help us to be uh, changed and transformed by the renewing of our minds. That we might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect work of yours is. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, Evergreen. If you don't know me, my name is Nick Kraus. I am a recent Lysitian of the James River Presbytery. And I've had the joy and privilege of preaching through or assisting in preaching through the book of Philippians, just like Steve said, and it was such a joy and privilege, and I'm going to be here, the, you know, the next couple weeks, and every subsequent time that I come here, I didn't want to have a one-off topical sermon series. I liked having the structure of working through a book of the Bible that dictates what God would like us to hear. That way, with you know, when you work systematically through a book, you get the benefit of you don't have to worry about me skipping over certain truths that are uncomfortable. You get the whole counsel of God. So that's what I want to do. And I want to start off with the Gospel of Mark. And the title of my sermon today, this morning, is Gospel Prologue, Making Preparations. And the reason why I have it titled that way is because really what we're going to be talking about today in Mark chapter 1 is we're really just making our way halfway through the prologue, halfway through the setup that Mark gives us for his good news. And I want to pause that something that um, Ben said during his prayer was actually the same thing that I was thinking about, which is why go to the gospel of Mark? Well, right now we live in a time filled with a bunch of bad news, don't we? We live in a time where there's wars with Ukraine between Ukraine and Russia. There's rumors of war 
that there could potentially be, and I'm not trying to scare anybody, potentially be a World War III? This is some bad news. This is kind of scary. But this is not unprecedented times. The Gospel of Mark was written, good news was written to Christians in the early 60s who were undergoing the persecution or would soon be undergoing the persecution of the Emperor Nero. Christians, uh, he would use them as his candles for his garden parties, putting them on stakes, dipping them in wax, and lighting them on fire. Emperor Nero, who would take Christians, sew animal skins to them and have them chased by wild animals. These are not unprecedented times. And, you know, these people, think about the early Christians who were receiving this gospel. They received this Bible tract, this good news about Jesus during times like those. You wouldn't think that people who are suffering intense persecution, fearing for their lives and really doing their worship services in the catacombs, that's like going to, you know, have to hide out in the graveyard in order to get away to be able to worship God. You wouldn't think those people would want to learn about history, would want to focus on what God has done in the past. They would, you'd think that they, those Christians would be a lot more concerned with their present and trying to be more practical. But those Christians, the early church, realized something about what Jesus had said. Jesus said, do not fear man who can kill the body, but fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell. See, the bad news that we look at in our circumstances pales in comparison to the bad news of the state of humanity. Every human being who is born is born in a state of sin. We see coming out of us sinfulness, and we all know, and we suppress this truth, we, we recognize in the world out there that sin has affected it, that sin has infiltrated every single system of our society. But the biggest problem is not the sin that's out there. It's actually the sin in our own heart. We suppress this truth, but we all, if we spend just a little bit of time thinking about the ways that we have done what is wrong, we know God will hold us accountable for our sins. Deep down inside, we know that the wages that we've earned for ourselves with the life that we live is death and punishment in hell forever. And the reason why we focus on the good news is because in the good news of Jesus Christ, what we have been given, what's been presented before us, is salvation from this very thing, an escape from the wrath of God, the just and good wrath of God that our sins really do deserve. And what we get in the gospel is a message of hope, of relief out of that. And I titled this a prologue, because that's the function of this text. Verses 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, act as a setup for the rest of the message about who Jesus is and what he has done. It kind of functions a similar way to the book of Job, chapters 1 and 2. 
What do we get at the very beginning of Job? Well, we learn who he is. We learn how rich he is. We learn about this, the devil who steals all of his wealth, all of his children's and everything he has. And that kind of prepares you as the reader for understanding the wisdom that's going to be coming through the rest of the book of Job and how Job wrestles with it. Without those few, those first two chapters, you'd be kind of confused when you're reading the book of Job. Similarly, with the gospel of Jesus, what we start off with is a prologue that tells us who Jesus is fundamentally at the very outset and seeing the very, in, the very inception of his ministry. So let's look just at that first verse, which acts as the functions as the title for the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, this is going to be the only time that Mark, the author, is going to speak directly to his audience. And he tells them right up front that this is, this is the beginning, he's starting off his book, of the good news of Jesus, the Christ and the Son of God. This is a, these two claims about specifically about Jesus, that he is the Christ, is something that Mark knows, and his readers should know, but he's going to show how he is the Christ all the way up till chapter 8 at verse 29 when Peter is the first person to recognize that Jesus is the Christ. But you know that from the outset, just with the first verse. Then what happens? Jesus starts talking about how he's going to die on the cross. And he starts moving towards Jerusalem. And his fa- while his father tells, you know, at the, in the very prologue at J- Jesus' baptism that he's his beloved son. And while the father confesses the fact that he is his beloved son at the transfiguration, no human, per- no human character, no person will actually recognize that Jesus is the son of God until Jesus dies. That person is the centurion soldier who actually assisted in the crucifixion of Jesus. He would look upon Jesus. This is after the, the veil was torn in the temple, that there was a massive earthquake, after the fact that the sky had been pitch black for three hours. After Jesus said, it is finished, and gave up his last breath, The centurion soldier looked upon the body of Jesus in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, and said, this truly was the Son of God. That's where we're going in this book. It's a pretty simple structure. And Mark is showing just at the outset that this is who we are talking about. And something that we might be assuming here is that what the good news of Christianity is, the good news of Christianity is about a person. The good news of Christianity is not a moral code. How to live your best life now. Christianity, the good news that we offer to people is not, first and foremost, primarily that you can get a get out of hell, you know, free card 
when you pass, you know, pass go, you collect this, and that in the next life you can go to heaven, escape God's wrath. It is those things that God, the Bible does give us a moral code, and it's important that Christians live by it, as we'll see even in our text when John preaches on repentance. The Bible is very concerned, and as I said in just the introduction, that the Bible's primarily concerned about this uh, fact that we are sinners in need of a Savior. But the good news that is offered to us is about the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's about the person you as a sinner are to run to, to go to, for as your only hope of salvation in life and in death. It is the good news that makes uh, J. Gresham Machen in uh, the Christian faith in the modern world. He said this, what I need first of all is not an exhortation commanding us to do something, but a gospel, not directions for saving myself, but a, a knowledge of how God has saved me. Have you any good news? Then I ask the question, then that is the question I ask of you. I know your exhortations will not help me. But if anything has been done to save me, will you tell me the facts? That's what we need. And the word gospel, when he uses it, when Mark uses it here, is kind of functioning, it's starting to function in history as the gospel, the way we use the word gospel, which is summarizing a bunch of information, and it really fits well with the title. This might be what we're reading here, the very first gospel that was written that Christians would have had their hands on. And notice what, right now we're in the prologue, really my first point, I kind of forgot to say this, my first point in the prologue is, the title of the sermon is Making Preparations. The first thing I want to do is make sure that we're reading the Bible well. Making preparations for reading the Gospel of Mark. And we get that in the title, the setup. But notice what I haven't said. Unlike the book of Philippians, I haven't talked about the author. I haven't talked about uh, the historical circumstances and how it affects what's being written. Yes, this gospel was written by Mark. One of the first things that would have been added to this gospel is a title that would have differentiated it from other titles. And we don't have one manuscript that, has, that does not have according to Mark or the gospel according to Mark. We know it's Mark, even from uh, some external sources like Papias, who was a second century uh, Christian, who wrote kind of about how Mark was a companion with Peter and how he recorded the sermons of Peter and, and they didn't do it in necessarily a chronological order. And Papias in that the reason why he was writing was to explain the harmony between the gospel of Mark with the other gospels. Sure. Yes, Mark wrote it and he wrote it in the early 60s. And if you want to see that this kind of lines up with a lot of Peter's sermons, you can read, uh, I believe it's Acts chapter 10. Peter's sermon actually follows a very similar format to the Gospel of Mark. It's like a condensed version of the Gospel of Mark. It starts 
when he's preaching the gospel, he starts with the ministry of John the Baptist. He talks about his Galilean ministry, and he ends in Jerusalem with the death and uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So it follows a similar format. But the reason why I didn't start off with telling you that is because that's not as important in this book for understanding the content as it would be in a letter. With a letter, you are writing from Nick to Evergreen contents, right? And it's really helpful to know what my situation is and what the problem is and how this letter is resolving that issue. But with the gospel, the format of this is not a letter, it's a biography. The closest, closest equivalent that we have, the closest genre that the gospel is to any other book is like a bibli- uh, not bibliography, a biography, telling about the life of this person, why we should adore him, why we should follow him. That's the genre. And you know what? This is, Mark has a different audience. He doesn't have like a specific church in mind when he's writing the book of Mark. He has the world in mind when he's writing the book of Mark for Christians and for people and to convince his audience, those who do not follow Jesus, that they should follow Jesus because he is the Messiah, because he is the son of God. That's what you need to know in order to be prepared to understand the gospel of Mark. There's one last word here that I think is helpful to start off with. They starts off with the beginning. Each gospel starts off their gospel (laughs) in a different way at a different starting point, a different starting point that is particularly chosen to accomplish a specific end. Matthew starts off with a genealogy of how Jesus is connected to Abraham, and he spends his entire book showing how all the promises of God that he made to the people of God, the Old Testament people of God, specifically the Hebrews, is being fulfilled in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. Luke starts back a little bit farther than that. He goes back to Adam. He starts off with a genealogy of Adam when he introduces Jesus. Why? Because he's showing how Jesus is, how he fits into redemptive history that he, like the first Adam, brought sin, uh, brought all mankind under God's wrath and curse by his one act of disobedience. Jesus would be the second Adam, who by his one act, his one life of obedience, and his one death on the cross, purchased salvation for all his people. And he sets him up as the second Adam, accomplishing all of God's promises in the Old Testament. So yeah, there's continuity, but there's a reason for these different starting places. And John starts off even farther back. To say that this man, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth, he actually came from somewhere. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, Genesis 1. But also in the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God. And not one thing that was made was not made through the word. And this word became a man. And he lived a perfect life and died on the cross. That when we look at Jesus, he starts out before time began to show you this is the God 
man. All the Gospels teach that Jesus is God, but there's a reason for their starting point, and there's a point of emphasis that is in each Gospel. Well, then what's particular to Mark? Notice when Steve read that, he did not mention Jesus. The Gospel of Mark picks up where the Old Testament left off. 400 years prior to the coming of Jesus, Malachi announced a prophecy. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And it's this. He said, Behold, I'm sending a messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Malachi chapter 4 talks about this man being Elijah. That Elijah was going to come and prepare the way of the Lord. 400 years after that, we get the ministry of John the Baptist. Picking up where the Old Testament left off with Malachi, and John the Baptist is here preparing the way of the Lord. So our second point is looking at this prophecy that we have been given in verses 2 and 3, seeing how God prepared Israel. Because that was really the point. Let's read again, uh, starting in verse 2, that as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I'm sending my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Then John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If we're going to look at really the point of this text, the first point that this text makes, the second point of my sermon, is that God first prepares his people, first prepares Israel by, by fulfilling, to me, peace, by fulfilling his promises. God fulfilled his promises from the Old Testament. That's where Mark wants to set, do this, his setup. The New Testament faith, Christianity, is not some new de, de novo thing that happens that happened 2,000 years ago. It wasn't as if God had never spoken before. What Mark does here is if you're going to understand who Jesus is, you need to see and you need to understand that he fits and he's the fulfillment of a long line of prophecy before him. God spoke many times in many ways through the prophets of old, but in these last days, he's spoken through the person of his son, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. That's his point. And he does it by showing that the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus is in fulfillment of scripture. Specifically, before the Messiah could come, the last place that we left off 400 years ago was Malachi saying, that there would be someone who would prepare the way for him before the Messiah came. I'm, I've been ma mentioning Malachi, but verse 2 says, as it is written, Isaiah the prophet. And the reason why is because that first line, the first 2B, if you will, saying, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. That's from Malachi 3.1. And it gives the context for the key verse 
in Isaiah 40, verse 3. Isaiah 43, verse 3 says, A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. In your spare time, I'm not going to read Isaiah 40 to 45 right now, unless you want me to. I probably still won't then. In Isaiah 40 through 45, what we see is that he's going to send a messenger, someone crying out in the wilderness, but who he's preparing the way for is Yahweh. He was going to send someone, the whole focus of Isaiah 40 through 45, he talked about how God is the creator of the universe, and now he was going to personally come to this earth, establish his kingdom, and save them from their sins, save them from the wrath that he had on them, that he would not be angry with them forever, but that he would personally come, redeem them, and save them. Getting ahead of myself. But what does this say about Jesus being the Son of God? Even John is confused when Jesus pops up, and he sees Jesus coming to him for, to be baptized, and he says, I shouldn't be the one who's baptizing you. And he says, you must do this so that scripture will be fulfilled. John has come preparing the way. And my third point, so God keeps his promises. That's how he's prepared Israel in one way. But specifically, he, keeps, he prepares Israel by sending John the Baptist, one who's proclaiming a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight, straight his paths. How does John, have you ever wondered this? How does John the Baptist prepare the way of the Lord? Why is he in every one of the Gospels? Why is the Bible spend so much time focusing on who John the Baptist is? Why does Jesus, Luke chapter 16, say that, that John the Baptist was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets? Have you ever been confused about that? It probably wasn't because he experienced a greater vision because Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six saw the glory of God in the throne room. John doesn't seem greater than that. Or what about the piety of Moses dealing with insufferable people, leading them for years and years and years? Or what about the faith of Abraham who trusted in God for his promises What makes John the Baptist the greatest Old Testament prophet is because of the significance of his ministry in preparing the way for the Lord. How does John prepare the way of the Lord? Well, it's kind of in that his title that we usually say. We call him John the Baptist. Verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness in proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's unmistakably clear who the one crying in the wilderness is. It's the one who came out of the witness baptizing people, John the Baptist. His ministry of preparation was his baptizing people. And when I call him John the Baptist, when we look at how John prepared the people of Israel. John the Baptist was not a Baptist in the sense of what we usually use the word. 
talking about referring to a particular denomination where they uh, immerse believers and uh, only uh, adult believers, and they have independent forms of church government. John the Baptist is not a Baptist in that sense. He's a Baptist in the sense that he has a unique ministry preparing the people, washing them of their sins. Verse 3 says that he made, that his goal, his job was to make his paths straight. Straight literally refers to, you know, straightening out things, but just like our English word, straight also refers to morality, not a crooked, not having a crooked character, but having it be straightened. If we're going to understand John's ministry, there's really two aspects that we have to look at. We have to look at the fact that what exactly means that his baptism was a baptism of repentance. And second, why is he at the Jordan River? Verse 5 says, In all the country of Judea, in all Jerusalem, was going out to him, and were being baptized him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John the Baptist, when he came on the scene, he came baptizing them, giving them a baptism of repentance from sins, and he did it at the Jordan River. One thing that I want you to realize when we talk about the preparation of Israel is to realize that John the Baptist played a unique role in redemptive history. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that John the Baptist, his baptism is not just like Baptist, that word does not mean the same thing that it means today when we talk about people. That his unique role, the baptism that he gave people is not the same baptism that we experience. That might be shocking for some of you, but I know this for a fact, and I would not be saying it if I did not think it was God's word, because in Acts chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, when Paul encounters people who have the baptism of John, he says this to them. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they, the people who were already baptized with the baptism of repentance, pointing to the Messiah, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. I don't have time to get into exactly what that means right now, but the point I'll have next week to get into that. The point here that I want you to know is John's baptism was unique. He had a unique role, and specifically what's related to that is the fact that he baptized at the Jordan River. What was John doing? John was at the Jordan River for a number of reasons, but I think this one is uh, particularly pertinent. Uh, this is from Fesco's book, which is a really good book about baptism. He said that John could have chosen a number of places to perform his baptizing ministry. But he chose the Jordan River, which was the gate to the promised land and the place where Israel reenacted the Red Sea 
crossing. Just as the Holy Spirit in the cloud of glory led Israel through the Red Sea, the ark of the Lord uh, led Israel through the Jordan. This is Joshua chapter 3. The ark of the Lord led Israel through the Jordan on dry ground to the promised land. Listen to this. John's activity in the Jordan was connected not only to the idea of cleansing water that is washing sin away, 1 Peter 3, but also to the redemptive historical significance of the Jordan. It appears that John was reenacting Israel's post-Exodus entry to the promised land. John was specifically, he was coming out of the wilderness, but he was doing that in fulfillment of prophecy. What is talked about in Isaiah 40 through 66? The fact that God was going to come save his people, and it was going to be like a new Exodus event. Remember how many thousands of years ago when God took by his own hand, took Israel out of slavery, brought them through the Red Sea, and into the promised land. He saved his people out of slavery in bondage. In Isaiah, God said that he was going to repeat that, that he was going to take all of his people out of bondage to Babylon and then bring them back into the promised land. When the people of God went into the promised land in Joshua, God repeated that miracle, having the water split and then walk across on dry land. And what is John doing? He is stationing himself, preparing the people for the new exodus. And what does he do? He stations themselves at the Jordan to reenact the baptism that Israel had in the past. The reason why I call it a baptism is because the apostle uh, Paul references the uh, baptism of Israel in the Red Sea in 1 Corinthians 10. When John does this reenactment, why he stations at the Jordan, the reason why I'm saying all this is that John is purposefully fulfilling scripture. He's fulfilling prophecy. The reason why he's doing what he's doing is because This is what God has promised from of old, that he would save his people, and he's reenacting this. Baptism, getting people wet for the repentance of sins, was not his idea that he just came up with. It wasn't something, he wasn't copying the proselyte baptisms of the surrounding culture, evidence of which uh, proselyte baptism We don't actually see any evidence of that until 200 years after Jesus comes on the scene. It wasn't copying the Qumran. I don't know if you've heard this before, the Qumran cleansing rituals. Because if you were going to get clean, you wouldn't get in the Jordan. The Jordan, if anything, would get sediment and dirt all over you if you were to get cleansed by that. And you actually have to rinse off afterwards. No, John was picking up on the scripture, on what God has promised, of what he was going to do. If you want to see some baptisms, you look at the Red Sea, look at the ark, but also look at Isaiah, Ze- uh, Zechariah, and 
forgetting one that's important, Ezekiel, talking about the fountain that the Holy Spirit was going to be poured out on his people and cleanse them of their sin. But his baptism, the second point here about how John prepared the people was not just his, it wasn't, you know, the uniqueness of his role was not that he was just fulfilling a particular promise of God that he would send someone who prepares his way at the Jordan River, but it was also that the fact that he gave a baptism of repentance. If you remember, when I read Acts chapter 19, the distinction between John's baptism and the baptism that believers receive is that John's was a baptism of repentance, and ours is in the name of Jesus Christ. John's, that John's baptism is a baptism of repentance is super clear. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 5, he baptized them in the Jordan River, and they were confessing their sins. In this reenactment that John is doing, preparing Israel for its Messiah, when God's coming to his people, he finds them unclean. He finds them that in their sinfulness, and he finds them in rebellion to God. And what they need to prepare for the Messiah is to turn from their sins and be ready for the coming of the Lord. No other gospel starts off this way. This gospel starts off with saying, God is coming to his people. And when he comes to them, they need to turn from their sin because when he comes to them, they are unclean. They are sinful. I can't find the quote. But when he finds his people, it's kind of startling the fact that the first thing that he notes about Israel is that they need a savior. Specifically, they need cleansing from their sin. They are not worshiping God. They do not love God. They do not, they do, not do what is right. And I think that's super clear once we meet the Israelites and we see where they're at, where we see that the religious leadership don't necessarily, they're first and foremost desire is not to follow God, but to be respected by people, respected for their piety. John is calling them all to repent of their sins, turn to him, turn to God, and be ready for God's Messiah to come. And in verse 5, he says all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him to be baptized. John, when he first came on the scene, he, would, he was specifically, he was really striking. He was, there was this mass of people that came to see him. John actually had a bigger following in the beginning of his ministry than even we're told that Jesus had. Why? Because people had been living in, ex in expectation of someone coming to prepare the road for the Messiah throughout the Old Testament prophets. And even to this day, uh, R.C. Sproul said, when John the Baptist appeared, there was much discussion about his identity. Many believed he was Elijah coming again. 
Even today, whenever Jews gather for the Passover Seder, there is an empty chair at the table. If you're a guest in the home when they are celebrating the Passover, you might ask, did someone who was expected not show up? Why do you have an empty chair? And they will explain to you that the empty chair is there for Elijah. They remembered that last prophecy. And when they saw John the Baptist, they knew instantly that this, this is Elijah who was promised to come. Why do I say that? Verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. Pretty striking image. But he, is this some just generic description of some desert man? eating the only bug that Leviticus 11 allows a Jewish person to eat? Not exactly. 2 Kings 1 verse 8, when Ahaziah, the king, he's trying to figure out from the prophets whether he'll get better or not. He knew from Elijah's description of what he was wearing, who he was. He, when the men came back and reported who they saw, he said, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, that's Elijah. And that's what the people of Israel have done here today in our text. John the Baptist was the promised one to come God had been preparing his people by fulfilling his promises, specifically by sending John the Baptist to prepare them with a reenactment of the Exodus event, baptizing in the Jordan. But this baptism of repentance that they had, cleansing from their sin, was the focal point of it. But it wasn't the only focal point. Verse 7 and 8 shows that, Jesus, that John prepared the people also by pointing them to Jesus. Verse 7, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. When you came to this messenger, the person that he preached about was not himself. He told them of their need to turn from their sins and turn to the living God to prepare for Jesus' coming. But his message as a preacher was about pointing people to Jesus. Pointing people, they didn't know it was Jesus yet, but we'll see next week that this is Jesus and look what he says about him. He says, after me comes one who is mightier than I. He's unworthy whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Everyone in the ancient war world wore sandals. Their feet got dirty. And if you were a noble person, if you were of anyone of any status... The work of a slave was the person who would actually touch feet, get his hands dirty, and take off his sandals. John the Baptist says that he is no better. The difference between him and Jesus, 
the difference between all these people are flocking to John the Baptist. They're interested in him and what he has to say. And John the Baptist says, don't focus on me. Focus on him who, him who is to come, who I'm not even worthy to be his slave. And if you had read Isaiah 40 through 45, you would see that we're talking about God here. So this is not some false humility that he has. And when he points to Jesus, he says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist has a different baptism, not only from the baptism that we receive in the name of Jesus, but also John the Baptist has a different baptism than Jesus. John baptized with water, symbolizing cleansing from sin, reenacting Israel's baptisms in the past to prepare for the Messiah. But not only that, but his was only looking forward to what Jesus would do in his baptism. Jesus, after he rose from the dead, ascended to the throne of God in Acts chapter 2, he poured out his Holy Spirit on all his people. And what rested on their heads? Tongues of fire. He's pointing forward to Jesus. He's telling people to hope in Jesus. This is a pretty weird way to start a sermon series or a gospel period. What we're getting at here, when we are preparing for understanding Mark, as we prepare to see how God has prepared his people by sending John the baptizer, who is baptizing people for the repentance of their sins, what we see is uh, just a couple of, we have, we, what we're getting to is the setup for Jesus. John's ministry was all about pointing to Jesus to come, who was going to be the savior of his people. The gospel is first and foremost about Jesus. Some quick uh, takeaways, some points of application. First thing is that as we read the gospel, recognize that the genre of this book is a biography. It informs us about who Jesus is and what he has done. A question that we should continually be asking ourselves when we're reading specifically the gospels is, what do we learn about Jesus in light of this present text? We're often, when we read the gospels, we often try to get to how we are to live our lives. For instance, we might read the temptation narrative and think to ourselves, how do we resist temptation like Jesus resisted temptation? That's a secondary point. That's a valid concern. But the first and foremost thing that you should be seeking when you're reading your Bible is specifically in the Gospels is, what does this communicate about Jesus when he's resisting temptations in the wilderness? What does it tell me about my Savior? And let me tell you, there's no better task for us to do than to get to know our Savior better. There's nothing more of practical use to us in times of bad news than to learn more about Jesus and how mighty he is to save us and how 
even if they, we have bad news of wars and rumors of wars coming, we have a mighty Savior who sits on the throne of God, who intercedes for us, and is able to bring us out of any disaster so that whatever thing that comes our way, we know it comes our way not out of the sphere of sovereignty of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second thing is that while John's baptism was unique, his message was not. He preached a message of repentance from sin and faith in the coming one of God. Getting ahead of myself, verse 15 summarizes the message of Jesus. And Jesus' own preaching was summarized as the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel, the good news. Our own confession talks about repentance. You know, you might read this and especially that line, repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and that might throw you through a loop of, are they saying turn so that you may be forgiven? Westminster Confession 15 explains it really well. Paragraph one says that repentance unto life Returning, being able to turn from your sin is an evangelical grace. It's a new covenant grace that's in the lives of people. And it is a doctrine, a teaching that is to be preached by every minister of the gospel, as well as that of faith in Christ. Not that it saves us from our sin, but it's a natural consequence of those who are saved, who have faith in Jesus. Paragraph three says, although repentance is not to be rested in as a satisfaction for sin, it is an act of, our pardon is an act of God's free grace in our life. Yet, it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. Did you catch the significance of that there? I kind of butchered some of the lines. But basically, saying that we preach repentance not as the instrument that you use to get God's grace for yourself. That instrument is faith. We trust in the Messiah God will send to save us from our sins. But repentance is such a natural consequence. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in a human heart, the same heart that the Holy Spirit changes to make us believers in God, also makes us hate our sin also makes us desire to seek after Christ and to know him in the power of his resurrection in our lives. We preach the same message. We preach a message of repentance to the world. And not only that, but we point other people to Jesus. John Calvin said, the spiritual truth, when the spiritual truth is about to appear, John is sent to remove the obstacles. And even now, the same voice sounds in our ears that we may prepare the way of the Lord, that is, that we may take out of the way those sins which obstruct the kingdom of Christ, and thus may give access to his grace. Dear church, we're in Powhatan County. We're two years removed from the events of this gospel, the good news but the good news has not changed. There are still people in this world who are dying in their sins and are headed to hell. 
as long as there's one person outside of these walls or in these doors who do not profess Jesus as their savior, who have not turned from their sins, it is our duty to perform the same ministry of John the Baptist in preaching repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Any preacher that you see stand up here that wants people to focus on him is not doing the same ministry of John the Baptist. We need to, when we're with our friends, when we're with our family, we should not be seeking to draw all the attention to ourselves to show how great we are or try to perform in a way that makes other people respect us. Our main focus when we're with other people is that they see who Jesus is, that they know that Jesus is greater than us. We should direct all of our energies into pointing other people to Jesus Christ who is our Lord, who is our King, who is our God, and who saves us from our sins, and is the only hope that people have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for instructing us how we should live, that we should, when we hear that Jesus is coming, when we hear that Jesus has already come, that our response is still the same. We are to turn from our sins and turn to the living God. We are to turn from our wicked ways and to seek salvation, the salvation that's offered in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray that everyone in this room would heed the words of Isaiah 55 that tells us to seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Why? Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Heavenly Father, I pray that everyone in this room would turn to God, for you are merciful and you have provided salvation. And I pray that we would value your salvation so much that we would tell other people the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. I pray that we would prepare people's hearts with the message that there is only salvation in Christ. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.